audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Our sermon text this morning is from James chapter 1, verses 19 through 25. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the words, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once, forgetting what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty, and perseveres. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer acts, he will be a blessing, he will be blessed in his doing. This is God's word. Good morning. Uh, my name is Ted Sin, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, although I spent the same amount of time uh, reading, studying, and preparing for this sermon as I normally do, and although I spent the same amount of time sitting in front of a computer trying to to write and capture ideas on what it is that God might want me to say in this sermon, I'm uh, I'm under um, I stand here with less um, than I normally do. Not only in terms of um, what actually got into the computer, but actually what got into my head. Um, and so uh, we just find ourselves at one of those places where. Um, we, I, I may have to meander around a little bit. I may have to ramble around a little bit. I may have to lean into you and your kind, smiling faces uh, more often uh, than normal. So I, I reached out to some friends uh, yesterday and asked them to be in prayer, and they were. And I, I believe that God was kind and that um, I'm okay with not having much. And I believe God was kind in giving me some rest last night. And I believe that he was kind in giving me some sense of an arrow or a path uh, to follow this morning, but let me just tell you where we land. Um, I'm really not going to speak to 22 through 25 much today at all. I intended to speak on doing the word uh, more next week and adding some verses to it. I will still do that, so we're not off in terms of our schedule, but I won't land on 22, 23, 24, and 25. So when you sing the song, We Delight in the Law of Your Word, after the sermon, just think about how great that song would have been had I preached those verses. It would have been amazing. And uh, only on Wednesday, I would have known that Sunday I was not going to be able to get that far. I could have told them another song would be better. Um, but at any rate, uh, another place that where, where we're going to land is, um, is that, uh, that it's in some places in what I have in front of me, um, I have some developed thoughts, and in some places I don't. And so I'll just have to try and muddle through that and remember where I'm supposed to supplement it so I don't uh, lose you. But, but at the end of the day... Um, I, I actually believe that there's something here. For, I know there's something here for us, and, uh, and I'm a, a twinge excited um, to tell you about it. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your kindness. I uh, thank you for um, your love for me, a sinner that is not contingent upon my behavior or my performance, but is contingent completely and wholly upon uh, Jesus and his grace uh, for me and his life for me, his death for me, his life now uh, in me. I thank you for that reality. Lord, I pray for my friends that you would teach them that your word would not return void. It would be living and active that you, even now as the ultimate teacher who teaches through men, that you, Holy Spirit, as the teacher would teach us. And that even a word or a phrase 
uh, a story, a song later, um, a handshake um, after the service, that in some way you would teach us this morning, being faithful uh, to finish the work that you started in us. We thank you that you engage us in your work, that you do not save us and take us out of the game. You do not save us and put us on the sidelines. You save us and then you tell us that in our weakness and in our inability and in our finitude and even in our repentant sin that we might be used by you um, in your kingdom coming. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so we're studying through James. Uh, James is the first book written in the New Testament. It's written by Jesus' half-brother, and uh, we're going through it thread by thread. So instead of going through verse by verse like Colossians or like Mark or the other books that we studied, we're going through more like Proverbs. So I'm taking a topic or an idea or a theme, and I'm starting at the beginning of James, and I'm following that thread all the way uh, to the end of James. So you can think of James sort of like a rope. There are these multiple threads that make up the rope, and a thread will appear for a while as you look at the rope, and then it disappears because it's gone behind for a while, and then it comes back up later. And that's sort of the way I'm thinking about the book of James. Uh, We're studying um, right now our second topic, which is pure religion. Uh, We're we're, we're talking about what James has a lot to say about, uh, which is pure religion. And that's basically this, that genuine Christianity is not something something that's simply internal, and it's not something that's simply external. That pure religion, and sometimes I use the word religion negatively in this church to talk about people trying to earn their salvation, but James uses the phrase religion positively. He, he says that pure religion is something that absolutely always begins internally. It starts with hearing. It starts with believing. But that true religion, pure religion, always manifests itself in external ways. So in other words, if you say, um, I, I, I heard the word talking about the gospel, but if you don't do it, then James says you never really heard it. You don't have true and authentic and genuine religion. And at the same time, if we say, I have faith uh, in the gospel, I believe in the gospel, but we don't increasingly perform uh, works uh, of service and loving obedience, that, that in that case, James would say, again, you never really believed the gospel. You believed something or you heard something, but it wasn't the word of truth. And so we're going to follow this thread probably five or six more weeks, even after this one. So we're on the topic of pure religion, uh, authentic Christianity. And, and James, in our text, um, uh, uh, gives a fundamental or, or a foundational doctrine. He gives a fundamental or a foundational discipline. And he gives a, a, funda- a fundamental or a foundational disposition of our heart. So when it comes to pure religion, a, a foundational doctrine, a foundational discipline, a foundational disposition. So it's not in your worship folder in the text that we printed out for you, but last week I taught extensively on verse 18. I'll just summarize uh, what we said very quickly through reminding you of what happened in John chapter 3. It says in verse 18, of his own will, talking about the Father of heavenly lights. So in other words, by the Father's own choice, he brought us forth, which is just the word for birthed. He, He birthed us. He begat us by the word of truth. And you remember we talked extensively about this last week, that theologians call this regeneration, that Jesus calls this being born again or being born from above. It's talking about new birth. It's not talking about physical birth, although Jesus does give that gift as well. It's talking about spiritual birth. It's talking about coming to life spiritually, that this is a gift from God. This is the foundational doctrine for James when it comes to pure religion. 
If you'll remember, we were, uh, I, re- I told you last week about Nicodemus and Jesus in John chapter 3. And I think that Nicodemus and Jesus is, is a great illustration of this doctrine because not only is it two men talking about being born again, but it's actually a story of a man being born again. Uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a popular man in the Jewish faith. He's a powerful man in the Jewish faith. And Jesus is doing some amazing things, and he's like, Jesus, clearly you're connected to the kingdom of God. And even in that introduction, uh, you can see Nicodemus is trying to decide, which kingdom do I want to go with? Do I want to go with Jesus and his cohorts, or do I want to stay with the Pharisees and, 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 uh, and stay in line with the Jewish tradition? And, and so he's sort of, you know, Nicodemus is a sly guy. He's like, you're clearly with the kingdom of God. And so Jesus out of left field goes, if you even want to see. So if you even want to be able to look at the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. Nicodemus is like, what in the world are you talking about? He's like, the way it's translated in our text, can a man go back up into his mother's womb and come out again? And, and Jesus says, no, to be in the kingdom of God, you have to be born of water and spirit. You have to be born physically and you have to be born spiritually. And Nicodemus is like really, really confused. It actually it boggles his mind. It's something even um, that's difficult to explain to someone who hasn't experienced this today. And he says, how in the world can this be? Jesus said, you know, you've got to be born of the Holy Spirit. And he said, how can this be? And Jesus doesn't go into some great theological argument. He doesn't go into some philosophical argument. He doesn't start speaking uh, in levels and in depths that you and I can't understand. Jesus preaches the gospel to Nicodemus. Because it says in verse 18 that, that of his own will, by his own choice, God gives us new spiritual life by the word of truth or through the gospel. So Jesus, I would surmise, because it says in Philippians he limited himself in his life, Jesus doesn't really know what's going to happen with Nicodemus, but he decides if Nicodemus is going to experience new birth, if he's going to have new life, somebody's got to preach the gospel to him. So what is the most famous Bible reference in America? What's the one you see on a card at a football game? What's the one that pops into your mind as the most famous verse in the Bible? John 3.16. Do you know the context of John 3.16? Nicodemus just said, how could this be? How could someone be born again? And Jesus says, well, the Son of Man has to be lifted up, talking about the Son of Man has to die on the cross. And then he says, whoever believes in the Son of Man will be given eternal life. And then he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son, Jesus talking about himself, to Nicodemus, seeing if the proclamation of the gospel will be met in him with a power from the Holy Spirit. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And the story ends. You're like, what's up with that? What happened? Where does it go from there? In John 19, John picks up the story of Nicodemus and Jesus again. And it's after Jesus' death. In fact, Nicodemus comes back on the scene when Jesus is hanging dead on the cross. And John says, yeah, Joseph of Arimathea was there. He asked for permission to pull Jesus' body off the cross. And so with him was a guy named Nicodemus. It said, he earlier came to Jesus by night. John's showing a contrast. He's saying, Earlier, he was afraid to talk to Jesus in public. Earlier, he wasn't quite sure if he wanted to identify with Jesus. Earlier, he didn't want the approval of man to go in his life. But now, at the end, at some point, whether it was Jesus in John 3.16 or Jesus dying on the cross, at some point, 
he decided, I'm following Jesus. So he identifies with Jesus by taking him off of the cross with Joseph of Arimathea. And it says, not only that, he brought a mixture of myrrh and alloys, aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, which is a very expensive amount in order to prepare Jesus' body for burial. And so John doesn't say anything in between. We can just look at the end of Nicodemus's life or at the end of the Gospel of John, and we can see that a change has happened in Nicodemus, that he is acting out differently than he did before, and so we can surmise from that that Jesus' teaching on the new birth from the Spirit happened to him at some point, and James says this always happens when the Gospel is preached. So there's a a story of regeneration that that sort of illustrates this fundamental doctrine for James when it comes to pure religion, when it comes to doing the word. James starts with this idea that you must be born again to have pure and undefiled religion before God the Father. But now, if this were Paul writing this book, we would have at least a chapter on regeneration. We would be reading at least a chapter on how this works itself out and how it applies and how all the connections are made. And he would use words that we, that we don't understand and we can never understand. And, and Paul would probably pray 17 prayers and, and he would be so thankful for regeneration. But, but James is incredibly practical. He's incredibly pastoral. In the very next verse, he leaves this great theological doctrine of the new birth. And, and in a nanosecond, he's already talking about how to grow a new life. He's already talking about what it looks like to be sanctified, to, to, to become a person who does more and more for the kingdom of God in your life. So he, he moves so quickly. If you'll just look at the text, it's, it's just rather obvious that this is about believers growing. After one verse, just like six words in the Greek language, all of a sudden, know this, my beloved brother. So at this point in the book, he's talking to believers. And then he says um, that what he's about to teach them will produce the righteousness of God in them. He, he tells them what he's about to teach them is able to present tense save your souls. In other words, it's able to right now change you and bring about uh, new character and new life inside of you. And so he moves on from this doctrine and says, if you want to grow, if you want to have true religion, if you want to be one who does the word and doesn't simply hear the word, there's a foundational discipline for you. This is the practice or the habit that must be increasingly present in our lives in order for us to grow in the faith, in order for us to grow in character, for us to become more obedient, for us to grow in our doing. Here is the foundational discipline, Bible reading, Bible study, Bible meditation, Bible memorization. Go to verse 19, okay? So he just said this amazing truth about regeneration. Next thing he says, know this, my beloved brothers and sisters, let every person be quick to hear. Quick to hear what? The word of truth, the gospel, the Bible. The Bible is the story of Jesus. It's the story of his redemption of all things, including us. He says, be quick to hear, be slow to speak, be slow to anger. We're gonna come back and talk about those phrases in a moment that kind of seem to be out of place. But he says this, the anger of man does not produce, it does not accomplish, it does not bring about the righteousness of God. And and so in this text, he's saying holiness, um, uh, moral beauty, good living, 
authentic living, living more like Jesus, this is produced in our lives not by anger and not by talking, but by what? Being quick to hear the Bible. So the fundamental, foundational discipline for true religion is Bible reading, Bible study, Bible meditation, Bible memorization, Bible conversation. Look at the second half of verse 21. Receive with meekness the implanted word. So the command is to receive it. To receive what? The word. Why would we receive the word? It is able to save your souls. Now remember, in our American minds, our modern minds, we hear the word salvation and we think past tense. But James is talking about a present tense salvation for the brothers and sisters that he has who are believers. The Bible talks about us being saved from the penalty of sin in the past, talks about us being saved from the power of the sin in our life, exactly like the confession of faith that we read this morning. It said that there's the opportunity for changed life in the gospel. That when it talks, the Bible talks about God doing that in us, it's a present tense salvation. That's exactly what James is talking about here. Paul will talk about this in Titus as a salvation from lawlessness, salvation from filthy living, salvation from selfishness, salvation from hurting others. And this is how it happens, being quick to hear the word, being quick to receive the word. Now, next week, I'm going to actually, like I said, teach 22 through 25 extensively, and I'm going to refer to it a lot and go in the verses past it. But if you just look down at verse 25, if you remember from the Bible reading, James is, is using an analogy for someone who hears the word and, but doesn't do the word. He says that person is like the person who looks into a mirror, and he looks for a long time, and he studies it extensively, but then when he walks away, he completely forgets what he was like when he looked in the mirror. But James says the difference between the one who does the law, the the perfect law, the law of liberty, I'll explain that next week, the one who does that is not the one who looks and walks away from it, but read verse 25. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres. It's just, it's a word that means to remain next to. It's a word that means to continue Um, The Bible has a word for perseverance, like that biblical character trait that we'd all like to have. That's not this word. This word just means stay in the presence of. Stay in the presence of what? The perfect law, which I'll show you next week is just another synonym for James for the Bible. So the point is this. Do you want to increase in doing? Do you want to increase in obedience? Do you want to increase in living a life more and more like Jesus? Three times in in this text, James says, Hear the word quickly. Receive the word. Persevere in the presence of the word. Have a Bible-saturated life. Every mature believer I know, woman or man, every mature believer I know, everyone that has character, everyone that is loving, every one of them that lives heroically and sacrificially, every one of them that makes a great impact in their world, Every mature believer I know has had and continues to have strong and vibrant and extensive spiritual disciplines in the Bible. They read it, they study it, they talk about it all the time, they memorize it, they meditate upon it, they organize their life around the Word of God. 
But not everyone I know who has disciplines in and around the Word, not everyone I know who has been studying the Word for a long time has character. And not everyone I know who has been reading the Bible for a long time is loving. And not everyone I know who memorizes the Bible lives heroically. Not everyone I know who, who, who talks with others about the Bible extensively has a great impact in their world, chief of which is me. Why? I've had the fundamental doctrine happen to me. I've had the fundamental discipline in my life for eight years now. What's going on? James says that true religion has to have a fundamental disposition of the heart that evidently I still lack. The discipline in my life and in the life of those who have been reading and studying and meeting with God on a regular basis, when our lives are not more loving, when our lives are not more sacrificial, when our lives are not more heroic, when our lives are not making a greater impact, it's because the discipline was not motivated by and met with the fundamental disposition of humility. Look at the text. This is the point of verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. The point here is humility. You say, how? I don't see the word humility anywhere in there. Remember, James is the first New Testament author. His book, more than any other, uh, looks and feels um, like the, the Jewish tradition that he came out of, the best parts of that tradition. Uh, the commentators are always saying that James has two primary sources when writing his book. He loves the teaching and the life of Jesus, and he loves the Proverbs. The book of Proverbs, the Old Testament book of wisdom, these three commands, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. They're prominent and they're repeated ideas in Proverbs. And of course, they're prominent in Jesus' teaching and they're prominent in Jesus' life that he lived for us. In Proverbs, the wise person is always listening, always asking questions, always learning. And Solomon, multiple times in Proverbs, makes it very clear that the disposition behind the willingness to listen, the heart disposition in a person who is quick to hear is humility. And in Proverbs, the fool is constantly talking. He's always angry. He's always overly emotional. And Solomon multiple times teaches that the disposition in the person who talks too much is pride and hubris and being full of yourself, thinking that your words are a gift to anyone who's willing to listen. And also, pride is behind anger, according to the book of Proverbs, the anger always flows, sinful anger always flows from arrogance. That my world is not going how I think my world should go. I use my anger to control people and situations because after all, I'm smarter than them and I should be in control of them and this situation. That when people and situations get out of control, I go angry so that I can get back into control because if they would just trust me, their life would be better with me in charge. This is how anger and control and pride are connected. And so commentators are like, why in the world does James say in verse 18 that you're born by the word of truth, and then in verse 21 say, receive with meekness this word? Why does he go on this two-verse uh, rabbit trail about quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger? 
And the point is this. It doesn't matter how long you read the Word. If you're not humble, it's not going to help you. In fact, it might hurt you. That if in my relationships with you all and my family and my wife, if I'm a man that's, that speaks a lot, if I'm a man that gets angry a lot, if, if I'm a man who won't listen, there's not going to be any different dynamic when I go to do my Bible reading at 4 o'clock in the morning. I'm still the man who wants to talk too much and get angry about things that I don't like and can't control, and I really have a hard time actually listening. And James is saying, listen, it doesn't matter how great your spiritual disciplines are. If your heart is not full of humility, when you enter into that place and enter into the Word, it'll actually hurt you. It won't help you. Now, I find that quite scary. And James says the same idea in verse 21 as well. Look at how he says it. Receive with meekness the implanted Word. Now, this is one of the coolest uh, doctrines. This is one of the coolest truths in the Bible. I, I hope this helps you understand, particularly if you're just starting to figure this out, if you're just starting to come to understand the gospel, if you're just beginning to understand that God is at work in you, that he's doing something, that the Bible says that God, when he gives us new birth, puts the word in our hearts so that when someone outside of us teaches us the word, preaches to us the word, when we read the word, when we study the word, something radioactive happens inside of us and that word goes in and it hits something that's already there. And this beautiful, harmonious kiss happens between the word inside of us and the word outside of us. And so this is why in those great moments of Bible study, Bible reading, listening to great preachers, this is why there's something inside of us just that feels harmonious and right. Because God, when he gives us new birth, he puts his word, his law, his ways in our hearts, and then he preaches to that heart inside of us, and it gives life to doing. It gives life to holiness. It gives life to beautiful living. And James says, receive with meekness the implanted word. Meek is a word that we don't use very often, and we kind of think weak when we hear meek. But meekness is quite close to humility, but it's not identical to humility. I kind of think of it this way, that the humble person is meek, that maybe meekness is a character trait of the humble person. Meekness means this, gentleness approachability, being available. The opposite of meekness is aggressiveness, harshness, being closed off, being impenetrable. So receive, if you think about it, receive is the right word to work with meekness. It's not a going out and grabbing. It's not an aggressive, violent, willful thing. It's a meek, gentle, humble thing. This is the disposition of our hearts that must drive us to the discipline of Bible reading that is used by God to bring about increasing amounts of true religion in us, something that happens inside of us and gets expressed outside of us. So a few application questions, potential dialogue points for your city group. First, Do you have any disciplines in and around the Word of God? Do you wonder why 
we are so powerless in the fight against sin? Do we wonder why our lives are rather fruitless in the grand scheme of things? James' first question he would want us to ask is, are you reading the Word? Are you receiving the Word? Are you memorizing the Word? Are you meditating on the Word? Are you conversing in the Word? If City Church is your home, are you a faithful participant in the City Bible Reading Initiative? CBR is this initiative where we're just trying to build the habit of and the heart for reading the Bible every day, uh, same text in the whole community, Old Testament and New Testament, meeting God in that place, submitting to him in that place, and then moving out into community in order to minister to one another, being in the same place and on, on the same standing ground. And, and so my question is, are you in the CBR initiative? And you can tell your city group why or why not. And I, I was tempted when I asked that question, I, I actually crossed it out. I, I was tempted to say, are you a faithful participant in CBR or um, something similar to it? But I'm not asking that. Which is the picture of humility? Which is the picture of teachability? Which is the picture of instructability? Which is meekness? I've got my own ideas on how I'm going to do this or I'm going to listen to my community of faith and do something humbly with them. That my pastor for three and a half years has been asking me to do CBR, but I don't really like being told what passage to read. I kind of want to go to the passage I want to go to. You tell me. (laughs) Actually, tell your city group. Don't tell me. (laughs) Which one is the disposition described by James in the text? When you do read CBR, or when you do engage in the spiritual discipline of Bible receiving, which describes you? Are you entering the Word and having it receive you, or vice versa? Are you handling the Word, or is the Word handling you? Are you studying the Word and picking it apart as if it needs to be meek, or is the Word studying you and picking you apart because you're meek and approachable? Do you see what it says? It doesn't say receive people with meekness. It says receive the word with meekness. In other words, when we open up our Bibles, we have to first open up our chest and say, enter. Have your way with me. I'm yours. When we come to an idea that crosses our perception of truth, when we come to an idea that violates what we think is true, what do we do with it when it's in the word of God? Do we assume that the Bible's understanding of reality and truth is archaic and wrong and and the wrong framework for today? Or do we assume that we're wrong and we need to change? When the word crosses us in terms of behavior, our our sexuality, what we do with our money, uh, how we perceive our time, um, where we live, who we serve, how we have parties, when, when the Bible crosses us on how we want to live life, Is it the Bible that needs to be meek and flexible or us? Is the Bible out of balance or are we out of balance? Do we need to find another passage in the Bible to make this passage go away? Is it foolish or are we? Where are you? You'll get to talk to your city group. I encourage you to talk to your city group. We're all going to be failing miserably on this at one or all aspects of it. Are you in the Word at all? Are you in the Word arrogantly trying to figure it out, thinking I've got this? Are you in the Word humbly, repentantly, being teachable, 
assuming that you're wrong and in need of correction. The Word needs to figure us out. The Word needs to get us. And so now, what do we do with all of this? Well, the first step would be, we'll become less angry and talk less. Because you see, he says you have to be humble and meek in order to have spiritual disciplines and Bible reading that count, that do anything for you, that transform you. So let's just all become less angry and let's just all talk less. Anybody tried that strategy? <laughs> Good luck. I, fa- I, th- I think this is fascinating. I was absolutely blown away by this reality. I got really upset on Monday morning. I spilled two cups of coffee. My dad gave me a truck that it looks brand new. You're like, y'all got a new truck. But no, it's 10 years old, but it was my grandpa's, and then it became my dad's, and it's been taken care of, and it looks brand new, and they gave it to me, and on Monday, I spilled two grande cups of coffee. They went from the little place right here, all into the CD player, all into the all six CD players, um, all down in the floors, all over the whole thing, and I was just absolutely livid. And I was, and it was like God said, "Are you even able to listen right now?" I mean, I, I began to think. First of all, when I'm talking, it's almost impossible to listen, and then second of all, when I'm when I'm angry, I'm almost not at all approachable. And then I began to realize that when I get angry, I talk, even if people don't want to listen to me. And I began to realize that behind all of that is galactic arrogance, as if I know that those coffees should not spill in my truck. So what am I going to do about the arrogance, which will then do something about the talking, which will do something about the anger? What do I do about the arrogance? What crushes arrogance? The gospel. Think about it. What is the gospel? Uh, That I've made such a mess of my life, I can't do anything to get myself out of it. That I've made such a mess with my life that some mere prophet couldn't do anything about it. That some mere king couldn't do anything about it. That some mere priest couldn't do anything about it. That some uh, mere uh, word couldn't do a thing about it but that God himself had to put on skin to do something about what I have done with my life and his world. That crushes my arrogance, that my life demanded the death of God in order to fix what I have done. When Maddie was, I don't know how old, we were just planting this church, um, probably 2008 maybe, she broke her elbow, and so it was like on a Friday night. I can't remember what night it was, but we went to one of those. It was called a night owl pediatric. It was one of those drive-in places, and they had the ability to do x-rays, and they told us on the phone, if it's broken, we'll be able to put a cast on it. Everything's going to be okay, and they were bragging about all that they could pull off. And, um, and first of all, Trish and I were in denial. We are like, get over it. What's wrong with you? Um, why are you being such a wimp? So you fell off the couch. Big deal. Um, and uh, not really. We could tell it was pretty severe. And... Um, and, and so we took her, and they took a picture of it, and they came in with a splint, and they're like, I'm sorry, we're just going to put this on and keep it immobile. You're going to have to go to an orthopedic surgeon because the break is so severe. And so we go online, and we find out that Jewett Orthopedic has um, this place you can walk in, and you don't have to have an appointment. It's the Cross uh, 1792 
And so we went there and we were greeted um, by the person who took our insurance. We, then the, a nurse looked at her arm and then a, a physician's assistant looked at her arm and then they came in and said, we've talked uh, to the folks across the street. You need to go across the street right now. And they need to look at this before another moment goes by. So we go across the street and um, one of the... Um, one of the orthopedic surgeons uh, looks at um, the x-rays that were done at Night Owl, and then they make more x-rays, and they take a little movie of it and everything. And he, he comes in and says, you know, it's pretty bad, and uh, I'll be right back. He comes back with the head of pediatric surgery at, ortho, at Jewett Orthopedic. And the guy said, I'll be doing the surgery. It's so severe. That's the gospel. That we're so messed up that we've just made such carnage of our lives, that we've hurt so many people, that this earth and world is spinning so rapidly and violently towards destruction and decay that God himself had to enter the room and say, I'll take care of it. And only I know how to take care of it. That's the gospel. It's the reality that that Jesus Um, because he had to come and live in our place, that makes our chin go down. And it causes us to be less arrogant. But when we realize he did come, and he did it for us, that we might not be condemned, but that we might have life, that picks our chin right back up. Not in an arrogant way, but in a humble, grateful way. The gospel causes our chin to drop because of what it says about us and what we've done, and it causes our face to rise because of God's love for us and what he's done for us. That will humble us. That will send us back into our disciplines full of meekness and humility and teachability, and that will begin to be a transforming power for true religion. Let's pray. Most gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kind and plentiful and bountiful and abundant work in our lives. Jesus, we thank you that you did indeed live a humble life, a meek life, that you indeed lived a life that was slow to anger. You only got angry when it was right and just and pure and rectifying, and we thank you for that reality. We thank you that, Jesus, um, that it says you grew in wisdom and stature, that you were teachable. The God of heaven was teachable. Thank you that your life was so beautiful in the place of mine and in the place of ours. Jesus, thank you for your death on our behalf. I pray that we would increasingly trust you, increasingly trust ourselves less, and increasingly uh, read your word, looking to do what it says. In your name we pray.